you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Uh, we'll be giving attention today to uh, verses 13 through 21. Um, as you do so, I want to, as you find that place, I, I want to ask you to multitask just a little bit and just flip over a couple of other pages. And I know you can do that uh, to chapter 4 of 1 Peter in verse 19. I think it would be beneficial for us today to uh, to to read this. Uh, just in thinking through and having read through the text over and over again, I think this verse probably captures the theme of the letter. Uh, oftentimes, in the course of reading an epistle or even uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the gospels, there is oftentimes a statement uh, that the Holy Spirit uh, delivers in the course of that. Uh, that captures everything that's trying to be said. And I think this probably, uh, at least as best I can tell, is probably the, the theme. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's hear that again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Uh, at least to me, there seems uh, to be no inconsistencies uh, with this statement that Peter made and what we have seen in the text so far. In fact, I think it is a point on. Uh, Adam brought that to our attention just a moment ago. I want to rehearse that again. And that is that believers are sovereignly called out, are sovereignly saved, sovereignly ordained. Strangers, strangers in that they are resident aliens uh, who, uh, by the way, are all family members, and that's going to become particularly important next week. I want you to hear that. Family members. We'll hear it again this morning, but we'll concentrate more on that. They're family members of every age, every millennial, every ethnicity, and they are away from their heavenly home. Okay? They're away from their heavenly home. They're away from their heritage. Uh, they are away from their, what will be their inheritance. They're scattered. They're scattered abroad, meaning that they are sovereignly dispersed. And as we looked at the first week, they are sovereignly dispersed with a specific mission. And that mission is to proclaim, and we see that if you will, turn over to chapter 2, looking in verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mentioned that, in that they proclaim, and I think we're going to hear today, that they reflect the excellencies of the only God who can call one out of darkness into light. In other words, there's only one God who can save. We heard that this morning in our assurance of pardon. There's only been one God who has given his life for his people, only one ransom, 
Only one who has atoned for sin. The only one who can. The only one who could have. And he has done that. Okay? And then in many ways and many times suffer. Okay? We're still talking about those who were sovereignly called, who were strangers, who were scattered, and in many ways and many times suffer for that work, that work of proclaiming, and even sometimes the work of reflecting. They suffer because of the relationship that they have in this family, in this relationship with God. They suffer for that. And in the midst of the suffering, they most exemplify the heavenly Father and Savior Christ Jesus who also suffered. And we heard that this morning as well. I know that's kind of a long segmented statement, but I wanted you to hear it that way. Believers are God's children. He sovereignly, providentially works in their lives. Their citizenship is in heaven. Yet they've been set apart as ambassadors in various places. Ours happens to be here in this area and wherever it is that He carries us in life. And that's true. Some of you are living far away from where you were born. Far away from what you used to call home. So where you are, where you were then, if you were a believer, you were an ambassador of Christ. If you're a believer now, you are an ambassador where you are now. Ambassadors. Various places throughout the earth. The only place, the habitat for the image bearers of God. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying we ought not to go to the moon and I'm not saying we ought not to go to Mars. I don't know whether we should or not. But there was no one living on the moon when we got there and there's no one living in Mars that we know of. What we do know are image bearers live here on earth. This is where we're called to be ambassadors. And in the course of that, we represent God. And in that representation, believers often suffer and fall under attack as we've mentioned, because of the relationship to the kingdom of God, just like the attack, and I was thinking about this, on the U.S. Embassy in Saigon in 1975 when Saigon fell, and in Macedonia in 1999, and in Benghazi in 2002, or whenever that was, 2021, 2019, and then uh, in Baghdad in 2019, but as we considered last week, not all suffering comes as a direct attack on the ambassadors because of their relationship to the kingdom of God. But here's what we did discover. Is that all ambassadors suffer hardship. All of us. Through which their faith and our faith is tested and built up to better enable them to reflect the excellencies of the only one who gives life. That's huge. That's huge to consider. So this is the sum of where we've been so far. If you are a believer, that is if you've trusted Christ and His atoning work for your life, He has saved you, you were chosen by God. You didn't choose Him, He chose you. God caused you to be born again to a living hope. You didn't cause it, you didn't bring that about, He did. 
God is the one who's keeping your inheritance for you while you are here, away from that place, and He is keeping you for your inheritance. What does that mean? It means there's no chance that you'll not receive it. No chance. No chance. It's not going to be lost. It's not going to be spent. It's not going to be stolen. It's not going to be taken away in the stock market crash. That inheritance is not going away and you will not be written out of the will. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There may be some of you at some point in time have, who have expected to get an inheritance and then when it came time for the inheritance, uh, there was nothing there to inherit. There's some of you may have anticipated uh, that you were written in the will and for whatever reason, a parent or a grandparent it, somewhere unbeknown to you changed their mind and they changed the will. Well, God's not going to change His will and His inheritance that He has that He's going to give you is not going to be lost. And all of this has come, listen, all of this has come by God's grace. That's where we've been. So let's look at our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now most of you know that I don't possess the art of alliteration. Um, but Adam did mention that at least the first couple of weeks in Peter, I did some alliterating and that it was helpful. I don't possess that art. Uh, if it's there in the text, uh, I state it. If it's not in the text, I don't. I don't try to create words and make words and make things say what they really don't say so that I can get you to remember it. Uh, remember the Word of God. That's what I encourage you to do. But I can alliterate today. So if you're taking notes and you want a way to follow along, right now is your chance. You take out your pen and paper, and you can write these uh, four, three or four, I think they're yeah, two and three word statements. This is what the text says. There is a command to hope. A command to hope. There is a call to holiness. Okay? Tracking along so far, there is a costly redemption. So a command to hope, a call to holiness, a costly redemption, 
captivated by God. Captivated by God. So the command of hope. It's interesting, in the past weeks we've looked, we've dealt with the first part of the letter and we haven't even got through what has been stated as the first chapter. Remember, letters are not written in chapters, they were just written. Chapters and verses are things that we have put in there. Sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not altogether helpful. But Peter didn't begin his letter with commands. You know, one of the things that you would expect is that he's writing here to church and preachers preach and they want to command and they want to tell people what to do and that's not what he did. But rather he began with reflections and remembrances. What he was doing, he was calling the believers to give attention to the salvation that they had received through the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you noticed our services never begin with commands? We almost never begin with imperatives. Why? Imperatives come after we have had an opportunity to reflect on and to remember the relationship that we have with God by His grace. We don't begin there, and Peter didn't. He called on them to remember who they were in Christ. He points them to reflect on the fact that they are now children of God. And as children of God, they're joint heirs with Christ whose inheritance is sure and fixed. Can you imagine being told by your parents when you sit down if there's something difficult you're getting ready to go through or something difficult that you are already going through to, sit, be, to have them sit down and say, I want you to know first and foremost that you are the love of my life. I want you to know that no matter what happens, you will always be my child. I want you to know that what I have worked for and stored up for you and I have for you is yours and you're going to get it. I want you to know that. And then... After all of that, you're not having to work for it. But here's what I see, and here is the direction that you need to go. That's how Peter addresses these believers, because that's how God addresses us, His children. If you're a believer, that's what God does for us. Everything about who we are and what we do, everything about our suffering, Every command, every imperative, everything that seems hard in the course of the text as we encounter it comes first and foremost after He has told us, you are mine. You are the ones I have chosen. You are the ones that I have loved. You're the ones that I have died for. You are the ones that I pour my grace upon. You are the ones that I protect. You're the ones that I care for. And that's how Peter begins. We've already stated this. He says, your inheritance is not going to be lost and squandered. You're not going to be written out of the will. Rather, I ensure these things to you. Every good earthly father wants to bless his children. I believe that. I'm looking at dads here today. You want to bless your children. You want to. You're going to fail them. 
but you want to bless them. Well, God wants to bless His children. And this is what He's saying. Get this. Just get it. Even those earthly fathers who fail, and some of them will fail in the worst of ways, I don't believe many of them ever set out to say, I just don't want to care for my children. The heavenly Father doesn't fail. He never will. He does not fail. He not only intends to bless His children, but He ensures that they will be blessed. That's the reason that we emphasize Christ's atoning work. Because in Christ's atoning work, He ensures the blessings. The blessings that His Father and their Father uh, intends for them. And Peter encouraged them to consider the grace of God in that. But then he moves to something that is necessary. And it's necessary for the matter of every believer. It kind of flows out of what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12. If you were to look over there, beginning in verse 35, uh, here's what you'll find. It says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are awaiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and, and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or if he comes in the third and finds him awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, remember what we just read that Peter wrote. Then Peter, this is in the Gospels, then Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for, for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserve and deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And then he says this, and this is the point. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What's the point? Peter had not forgotten that. So now he is speaking to these sovereignly chosen strangers scattered who are suffering. And he's calling them now and commanding them to hope. Look at what he says in there 
in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds and being sober-minded, and here's the first imperative we hear. This is it. Set your hope, how? Fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've been thinking about this week, this text, uh, about the, the continuum that those who profess Christ are on. Most of them. There's the easy believer that has bought into easy believism. And that is, it just simply states that all I have to do is say that I believe and that I'm saved. That statement may come in the way of having prayed a prayer, some kind of an association with the church, maybe even being baptized. But the, the, the point is, is that I, I've just, I believe, I'm a believer. And that's all, I, that's, all that, that's all there is to it. Maybe they've had some kind of emotional or, or spiritual experience. And then there are the ones at the other end of the continuum. And that is that they believe that they need to act like a Christian before they are a Christian. In other words, there are certain things that they have to do. They have to reflect God and reflect Christ in some way before they deserve Him. Well, the fact is we never deserve Him. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. What's the point? The point is, is that Peter understands that and there is somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle of all of this, that we find those who, who recognize there is nothing that I can do to change me, to bring me to a place that I deserve God, that I am, that I am without anything to bring to the table. And then God does a work in me or in every believer, that now they begin to think differently, they feel differently, their hearts are transformed. Is this important? It's tremendously important. Why well, mention this? Well, Peter understands that for the believer, he or she needs to be commanded to hope in God and look ahead to the return of Christ. When God's grace, not judgment, will be received. Why? Because he knows that they're going to come under all kinds of attacks. He knows that. Not only does he know that they're going to come under all kinds of attacks, he knows they're going to suffer. He knows they're going to struggle. He knows they're going to be persecuted. He knows they're going to become discouraged. How many of you over the course of the last weeks have been discouraged in some way in your walk with the Lord? We need to be encouraged in this. What encourages us? It's not just a word. That's not it. We look ahead to Christ. We look at who we are in Christ and we look ahead to the time when we will see Christ face to face. A grace, not judgment. What kind of grace is it that we're going to receive when Christ turns up? Notice what he says. He said, he said in verse 13, he said, Hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is the grace that came to you in election. 
There is the grace that came to you in your call to the Lord. There is the grace, and he's already mentioned it. There is the grace that has come to you already through the prophets, through those who have preached the message of the gospel. We looked at it last week. There's even a grace in the fact that the angels have glimpsed the redemptive work of God and they are looking ahead. They're pulling for us because they're wanting to see God glorified and they're wanting to see the end of all of this. But what kind of grace is it that comes when Christ in the end is ultimately revealed to us? Romans chapter 8 and verse 23 says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Waiting until we are completely made whole. I want you to think about this for just a minute. There, there, for those of you who have some aches and pains, for those of you who struggle physically in some ways, for those of you who are healing and are broken up. Uh, for, for those of you who are aging and you're going to move a little bit slower. And all those kinds of things. For all of you, just remember that in Christ, if you are a believer, there is a day when all of that is completely reversed and your bodies will be redeemed. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Why, why am I concentrating on this? It's not just about our bodies and it's not just about that part of the redemption. But remember, there is a grace and there are graces that are going to come to us when we step into the presence of Jesus. And we should look ahead to that. We need to look ahead to that. That will keep us going. That will keep us pressing on. Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 4, When Christ who is your life appears then you will also appear with Him in glory. I want you to think about that for just a moment. There's a whole lot in the course of our lives today that does not reflect what we expect to see in the fulfillment of the glory of Christ that, that, just, that transforms everything around us. It was akin to to what the disciples, Peter, James, and John, got a glimpse of on the Mount of Transfiguration. The, the full, this fullness of the glory of God. And we will be glorified in that way, and we will see that glory. So what is the future grace? It's the ongoing grace that keeps us and will deliver us into the presence of Christ. That's the point Peter's making. That's the reason he's telling them. And he says it this way. Look in verse 13. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the receiving of this grace. That's how it's accomplished. And I want you to confuse what he's saying somehow that he's setting aside faith 
and that somehow this is earned or somehow we set aside faith and it's all about what happens with the intellect. No, he said prepare your minds for action. Paul put it this way, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is an intellectual connection in the course of this where we, by virtue of who we are, we don't, we don't press beyond the faith, but we look ahead with our minds. We look ahead to Christ. Peter is saying, prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded. What Peter has in mind here, the phrase literally means to gird up your mind. What does that mean? Well, the picture is, is during those days, the men wore long flowing kinds of robes as their outer garments. Um, I'm not suggesting this, men, don't go home and put your wife's nightgown on and try to run in it. I'm not suggesting that. But imagine trying to run with a long robe on. Well, what men did when they were getting ready to go to battle, when they were getting ready to, to work, to move quickly, when they were getting ready to run, they would pull that robe up and they would tuck it into their belt. They were preparing themselves to, to get on with whatever it was they were getting on with. I was reminded of this uh, back here a few weeks ago when, when Adam reminded us whenever the, the Israelites were setting out on that first Passover. What was, what was the instruction for the men? To gird your, gird your loins. In other words, pull your cloth up, get it up, get it in your belt, eat the meal, and be ready to move and do what God has called to do. That was a part of them doing that. And that's what he's saying here with our minds, that we gird our minds. We gird our minds. We prepare to act. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, a medical doctor at one time, by the way, and, and, uh, and then a great preacher, wrote regarding the disastrous results that occur when the intellect is left behind. He said, no true Christian in his or her right mind will desire anything other than righteousness and holiness because that individual knows, knows who he or she is is in Christ. And we know it in our minds and we know it in our hearts. I wonder if we think sometimes it's better to be ignorant of God's Word than to be well informed in it. We might think so at times by the, giving so little attention to God's Word. By giving so little attention to wanting to know what it says and what it says and what it means. Can and does biblical knowledge create a sense of pride within some and, and with that a sense of self-righteousness? Sure it can. Sure it can. But what does ignorance do? What does ignorance of God's Word do? Well, ignorance of God's Word prevents us from being able to gird up our minds to look toward this hope in Christ to know of this grace that we just spoke about. And then he said we needed to be sober-minded in that hope and, 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 and not self-deceived. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, the opposite of sober is to be what? To be drunk, to be inebriated, to be intoxicated. 
Intoxicated with what in the course of this life? To be intoxicated with all the things that are around us and all the things that are in this world that come at us, that show themselves to be things that, man, I've just got to have this or I just, I just want this and to give our lives to all of these things. He said, now, and that what all preachers say, just look at your own life. Look at your own lives. What are the things that you desire most? Those are the things that you're giving your attention to. What should the child of God desire most? Him, His presence to be with them. They needed to think clearly on the truth of Scripture about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And that's what Peter was pointing them to. The same thing that we need. It's what I need. I know that. It's what I need. I was sharing this past weekend, we had the pastors and our wives had gotten together and worked through some things together. And Booney had, he asked me Saturday morning when we got up, he said, tell me really, brother, he said, how are you? We were all sitting there together, and he and Adam and I. And I said, well, I said, I'm okay, I'm okay. He said, no, honestly, how are you? And so we began to talk about how I, how, how, how I was and how I am. And this is one of the things that I told him. I said, I don't know if some of this has to do with age or not. I'll be 63 in July. I said, I don't have a category in my mind for retirement. I've always said, and he knows that. He's, I said, I want to die with my boots on. I don't have a category in my mind for retirement. But for whatever reason, in the course of these days, I'm seeing my classmates and those who are my peers retiring and Many of them, in fact, all the ones that I know at least at this point, are retiring to live for themselves and to serve themselves, to do all the things that they've always wanted to do that they aren't able to do. And I don't have a category for that, but it is playing upon me in some ways. I know. And you know the thing that saves me from that? The thing that saves me from that is to look ahead to Christ because nothing here is worth living for or dying for short of the gospel. Because at the end of the day, everything here is going to go away or I'm going to go away before it goes away, but we're all going to go away at some point in time. And what I have to look forward to is looking at the Lord face to face. And that's what Peter's pointing them to. And then he calls them to a holy conduct. Look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children. And this flows out of that. That's kind of verse 13 is the transition. And then verse 14, as obedient children. Now I want you to get that. It doesn't say as obedient servants. It doesn't say as an obedient slave. It says as obedient children. Peter is calling their mind back to their heavenly Father, back to the relationship that they have with God, back to the heart of that relationship. Holy conduct is that distinguishing mark of those who set their hope in the grace of the revelation of Christ. We'll continue to see this as we work through Peter. But what's the motive behind it? Well, first, beyond the first thing that he says is the relationship. The second thing that he says that motivates us to this would be verse 15, but 
as he who called you is holy. Not that he called you first to be holy. No, he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. What is the point? I, you may not have had this experience. In growing up, I wanted to be just like my daddy. When I was five and six years old, my daddy wore khakis. I wanted to wear khakis. Whatever kind of shoes my daddy wore, I wanted to wear. Uh, y'all may not know the term uh, brogans, but uh, they were work boots. My daddy wore work boots. I wanted work boots just like my daddy. My daddy had a pair of boots that he hunted in. I wanted a pair of boots just like him. I wanted to look like him. I wanted to talk like him. He wasn't a perfect father, but I wanted to be like him. Now I look to my heavenly father. I look to my heavenly father who is perfect. And what should be the course of action for me? Want to be like him. Want to be like him. And that's Peter's point. We ought to want to be like God. And He is holy. And He draws on Leviticus 11.44 that says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. The Holy Spirit prompted him to select this text, and it's repeated throughout the course of Scripture, but prompted him to do this. Why? To press them that in the midst of this time of exile, that they live distinctively as the ambassadors in those places that they were being called to live. Live distinctively. When we give our mind to God and consider our seeing Christ with our hope being set on that moment in time, it really does something in our thinking about our relationship with the Father. The mark of a believer is one who desires to be obedient. Are we always obedient? No, we're not. I, I, and, and I'm not saying this to let us off the hook, to, to, to say that God's Word says we ought to be holy like He's holy, and then somehow or another, but it really doesn't mean that. No, it means that. It means that. Well, listen to what Jesus said in John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you're truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Whoever has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me, and he who loves Me will be loved by My Father, and I will love him and manifest Myself to him. For one who has died, talking about Jesus, for one who has died, has died so that we would die and be set free from sin. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. But then Jesus also said in Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. What has He already said? He said, it's likely that in the course of our life, we're going to have a brother or sister in Christ that is going to sin. What do we do? Well, we go and we address those issues with them. And then we embrace them and we forgive them and we love them in the way that God has loved us. That's the point. There is the place where sin comes into play. 
And ladies, y'all will remember this particularly because you just finished up 1 John. But what did John have to say? He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. Isn't it incredible how God calls us to be holy, but then the ongoing work of His grace in us is this work of grace showing us the sin in our life, bringing us to place of conviction regarding that sin, and then lavishing us over and over again with the truth and the reality of His forgiveness. You know the reason that He could say, I'm holding your inheritance for you, but I am keeping you for your inheritance? Because of that ongoing work of grace and forgiveness, even in light of our sin. And how is that possible? Because there's a costly redemption. Look in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ. Your life has been bought with the blood of Jesus. And what does all of that do? Well, look in verse 21. All of this has taken place for your sake, believer. And and, and if you're hearing, you haven't trusted Christ, know that this is God's gift. This is God's gift for those who are sinners. Christ died for sinners. For your sake, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. We're captivated, captivated by God. So what does that mean for us? It means that the work of God for us is a work that ultimately, ultimately commands us to hope in the grace that is to come, to walk and live in holiness and obedience, looking to Christ and realizing the great price of our redemption. And and this was what Peter was saying, and that will completely, completely, captivate our minds and our hearts that does what? That pushes us even closer to wanting Him more and more and more. My prayer for us this week has been that we would want to see Jesus more than anything in all of the world. And that that Long would capture our minds and our hearts and our affection. Would you pray with me? Father, please work in me 
please work in us. That seeing Jesus and being with Him, being in Your presence becomes the only thing that we care about as we live so that others will be able to see in us the excellencies of you who have called us out of light into darkness and out of death and into life. Please do this. In Jesus' name, amen.